This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. I apologize in advance for my super sensitive mic. You'll probably have to deal with airplane and car noises and maybe some fat ass husky walking around upstairs noises. I'll edit out what I can. I like this one a lot better than my old one, but goddamn, you can hear the neighbors arguing down the street with this thing. Have you followed me on the internet yet? Are you subscribed? Have you come to watch me get way too drunk on Rumble on Fridays and bullshit my way through the news? If not, you should really consider it. I hope y'all had a good New Year's and that none of you got a DUI. I know I'm a couple weeks late, don't mind me. I've had my nose to the grindstone lately. Let's get into some capital punishment. There's a Family Guy clip where Stewie takes a trip to Nebraska, and he's trying to converse with the locals at a diner. He asks them if they've seen any good movies or anything else recently, but no one has anything to say. He then asks, Anything new with corn? This is basically what I picture when someone mentions Nebraska. A wide open cornfield with a tractor in it. I don't know a lot about this state. Never had any internet friends here. Hell, I've never even driven through it. They have a pretty interesting history with the death penalty. The first man executed here was Cyrus Tater, who was hanged for murder in 1863. After Furman versus Georgia, Nebraska reinstated the death penalty and has repeatedly tried over the years to abolish it. They were the first state to issue a moratorium on it while a study was being conducted on how fairly it is applied. In 2008, the Nebraska Supreme Court ruled that the electric chair was unconstitutional. So I guess I have something in common with these corn people. Capital punishment was abolished here in 2015, but voters approved a ballot question that would reverse that decision, and to this day, they still put people to death for their crimes. It's been a few years since they actually executed anyone, but there are 12 people sitting on death row as of the time of writing. In the last episode, I talked about how you can still be found guilty of murder even if you were only involved in the whatever other felony took place. In Nebraska, you can be sentenced to death even if you weren't the one pulling the trigger. That's a fucking Texas move if I've ever seen one. Texas versus Nebraska, damn it, Dale! Sorry, had to throw that in there. I guess it's time to head out to this open field, so grab those weird little corn holders and a John Deere hat. We're heading to the corn and Kool-Aid state. Corn is always interesting. If you've ever watched any of my Rumble videos, you've more than likely heard me make the joke that there's a very simple solution to the lethal injection protocol crisis. Fentanyl. It kills people every day, yet millions choose to keep using it. Can't be that fucking painful, now can it? Beats the hell out of that potassium chloride that feels like fire in your veins. Believe it or not, Nebraska was the first state to use fentanyl in a lethal injection. They used it in combination with other drugs, including, you guessed it, potassium chloride.
Death Row inmates often sit waiting for the state to kill them for somewhere between 20 and 30 years. This is the amount of time it takes to run out the legal clock and dismiss any final appeals that may spare their lives. This first Nebraskan I'm going to tell you about sat on death row for over 38 years. His crime wasn't as disgusting as a lot of other ones I've talked about, but his motive sent chills down my spine. On August 22, 1979, Carrie Moore and his 14-year-old brother hailed a cab in Omaha. When Ruel Van Ness Jr. stopped his car to let the men in, Moore pointed a gun at the back of his head and demanded money. Ruel had some balls of steel and tried reaching for the gun, but Moore shot him before he could get the weapon away from his head. The robbers then drove off in his car. Moore would later claim this murder was accidental. I'm not sure how that works when you're intentionally pointing a gun at someone's head, but okay. Just five days later, Moore would get another cab. Apparently he didn't have a car of his own and had ditched the one he'd stolen with his brother. After arriving at his destination, Moore shot Maynard Helgeland three times in the head, for no reason other than wanting to prove that he could take a man's life without any help. This isn't one of those child rape or torture stories. This one is more reminiscent of the crimes I covered in the Maryland episode. Absolutely fucking disgusting in its own way. The trial went as most death penalty trials do. The defense argued that Moore had been abused as a child and this should somehow be a mitigating factor. Moore himself would state in later writings that he never believed his past was an excuse for his crimes. Despite feeling this way, he would try to escape death row by trading clothes with his twin brother. He knew his death sentence was just, but still wanted out of it. Did he really think that would work, though? Really? Moore appealed the ever-loving fuck out of his death sentence. It was stayed a handful of times due to challenges to the state's execution methods, but in May of 2018, Moore asked the Supreme Court to allow him to stop appealing his death sentence. That's, uh... What? You have to ask permission to stop appealing? Do we not have the right to decide what we do in legal situations? One of Moore's pen pals would go on to say that the man had grown tired of living on death row, and that he believed God had forgiven him for the murders. Carrie Deed Moore was executed by lethal injection on August 14, 2018. He was Nebraska's longest-serving death row inmate, and the only one to date to be executed with this method. In an attempt to stop the execution, the German pharmaceutical manufacturer filed a lawsuit claiming that they only sold the drugs in question with a legally binding clause that they not be used in executions. The EU is famous for being against the death penalty and will do anything it can to interfere with American executions. If you ask me, Nebraska should have just found a fentanyl dealer on a street corner and handled it that way. The petition for the restraining order the company asked for was denied. A similar issue came up during a case in Nevada, but we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. When asked if he had any last words, Moore said, Just the statement that I hand-delivered to you already about my brother Donnie and the innocent men on Nebraska's death row. That's all I had to say. I can't find a full copy of the written statement. His last meal was a pizza from Pizza Hut, strawberry cheesecake, and Pepsi. The pizza was shared with the prison guards as well as a few friends who came to visit him.
when I was writing the main episode and struggling to find cases with last meals, I came across one that hits a lot of my buttons. It's an interstate case that starts on the East Coast and ends in Nebraska. I guess seafood and corn go well together? I thought about putting this one in the main episode, but didn't want to fuck up the historic vibe with an 80s serial killer, so I'll put him in here. I'm just gonna assume Cajun last name, so don't crucify me if I'm wrong. I like putting Cajun seasoning on stuff. Fight me. John Joubert was born July 2nd, 1969, in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts. His home life wasn't great, never is with serial killers. Joubert had one sister, and his parents divorced when he was just six years old. His mother took her kids up to Portland, Maine, and housed them in a rundown apartment. Definitely a step up from a stable home with his father. Joubert's band teacher would later describe his mother as manipulative and cold. She wouldn't allow her son to go see his father. I'm not finding anything in here about him being abusive, so I'm just going to assume that this woman is a selfish bitch. Joubert was picked on a lot in school for being of smaller stature, and generally quieter than other boys his age. For some reason, he didn't fight back, just accepting the abuse and possibly thinking that he deserved it. As he got older, he countered the feelings of isolation with heavy involvement in extracurricular activities like running track and playing the clarinet. Unfortunately, though, it didn't help. His loneliness eventually developed into sadistic fantasies of murder and bondage. At the tender age of 13, Joubert stabbed a girl with a pencil and became sexually aroused when she cried out in pain. The very next day, he came to school armed with a razor blade and slashed another girl as he rode past her on his bike. He was never identified or charged in either of these attacks. During a fight, he nearly strangled his opponent to the point of unconsciousness. All the years of being picked on finally caught up to him, and he snapped going on to consider casually attacking people with knives as a way to feel a sense of dominance. Somehow, Joubert made it through high school and graduated in 1981. The fantasies would get progressively more violent and eventually turn into more than just thoughts. On August 22, 1982, an 11-year-old boy named Ricky Stetson went out jogging on the Back Cove Trail in Portland. He was expected home by dark, but never showed up. The next day, a passing motorist on I-295 would find his body. Ricky had been undressed, strangled, bitten, and stabbed to death. A suspect was found and arrested, but his bite pattern didn't match the ones found on the body, so he was released after sitting in jail for a year and a half. Side note, bite mark evidence is about as reliable as a polygraph. Human teeth, unless they're super jacked, are pretty similar from person to person. Holding someone in jail for over a year on just this evidence is terrible. The man who committed this murder would make his way down to Nebraska and strike again the following year. Do y'all remember the case of Johnny Gosh? Sword and Scales covered it, yeah, you, you already know, because Mike finds all the good cases. Well, if you're unfamiliar with it, a young boy out delivering newspapers in Omaha was kidnapped in September of 1982. His mother is fully convinced that he was taken by sex traffickers and has even claimed to have seen him since his disappearance. I'm not gonna doubt her. She makes a strong case. Go listen to them sword and scales for more details on that one because it is a fucking monster of a case and I don't have the time to go into it. Anyway, 
Danny Joe Eberly was 13 years old. Out delivering newspapers on September 18, 1983, when he disappeared from Bellevue, Nebraska. His brother had been out delivering papers with him and remembered seeing a tan car following him on a few different occasions before he went missing. Danny's bike was found in front of the fourth house on his route. No signs of a struggle were found, but it was pretty clear that Danny hadn't left on his own. After three days of searching, Danny's body was found about four miles away from his bike. He'd been stripped down to his underwear, bound with tape, and stabbed to death. The medical examiner made the assumption that he'd been tortured before his death, as there were many knife wounds across his body in addition to the nine stab wounds. Kidnapping is a federal crime, so the FBI got involved and tried to find a suspect. A young man was arrested about a week after Danny's murder for molesting two boys. He gave the FBI a false alibi and failed a polygraph, but didn't fit the FBI's profile, so he was released. They tried questioning other local pedophiles as well. Their efforts were fruitless, and the case went cold. They should have been looking in lobster traps instead of cornfields, but whatever. This was the 80s. Everyone was coked out of their mind and high on hairspray fumes. God, no wonder there were so many serial killers in the 80s. The mysterious white man in the tan car would reappear again on December 2nd, 1983, in Papillion, Nebraska. He drove up to 12-year-old Christopher Walden and threatened him with a knife to get him into the car. They drove out to some railway lines on the outskirts of town, where Christopher was ordered to strip down to his underwear and lay down. A struggle ensued, and the boy was stabbed in the throat with such force that he was nearly decapitated. His body was found two days later, about five miles outside of town. This crime bore many similarities to the murder of Danny Eberly, but there were also some differences including Christopher not being bound and his body being more concealed. No obvious suspect emerged, which is pretty common in cases like this. Thankfully, a preschool teacher in the area had enough sense to write down the license plate of a suspicious car she'd seen driving around in the area. The man driving had noticed her and stopped to threaten her before driving away. The police were able to trace it back to John Joubert, who had rented it while his tan Chevy Nova was being repaired. Joubert was a military man, working as a radar technician at Offutt Air Force Base. After issuing a search warrant, the FBI found rope in his barracks room that matched what had been used to bind Danny Eberly. This rope was very unusual, and was determined to be manufactured for the U.S. military in South Korea. Joubert later admitted that he got it from a Boy Scout master. Why am I not surprised? The FBI likes to profile people. I've been profiled before. Turns out that Utah cops think goth girls with a face full of metal are criminals. In his defense, I was blacked out and crying uncontrollably. Probably why I wasn't ticketed for underage drinking. Anyway, the FBI is pretty good at figuring out who people are based on their crimes. It's a weird science. Joubert's profile, along with the cases of the two Nebraska boys, were presented during a training class being held at the FBI Academy at Quantico. A police officer from Portland, Maine, noticed just how similar these murders were to one that took place in his jurisdiction. This was just dumb luck, seriously. After looking into it, they determined that Joubert had lived there around the time of the murder. Bite mark comparisons would be the nail in the coffin. Again with this shit. It's like the least accurate thing you can use to hang someone. 
So in addition to the three murders and the pencil stabbing, the FBI determined that Joubert had also been responsible for slashing a nine-year-old boy and a young female teacher. Joubert confessed to the Nebraska murders, but initially pled not guilty. Several psych evaluations were done, which determined that he had OCD, schizoid personality disorder, and sadistic tendencies. He eventually decided to change his plea to guilty. Joubert was found to not have been psychotic during his crimes. We've been over this a handful of times. Being crazy does not mean you're legally insane. There's a lot more that goes into it. Joubert was given a life sentence in Maine for the death of Ricky Stetson, plus two death sentences for the murders of Danny Everly and Christopher Walden. He appealed, of course. His lawyers claimed that the aggravating factor of exceptional depravity was too vague to be considered constitutional. I don't know about that. Shooting a guy in the chest while you're robbing him is fucked up, but stripping down a teenage boy and slashing him with a knife before stabbing him to death is, uh... Exceptionally depraved, I would say. The appeals court shared my opinion and overturned the writ of habeas corpus, saying that he'd shown sadistic behavior by torturing Danny and Christopher. John Joseph Joubert IV was executed by electrocution on July 17, 1996. A later appeal to the Nebraska Supreme Court over whether the electric chair is constitutional we've been over this, it's not, revealed that during his execution, Joubert developed a four-inch brain blister on the top of his head. I'm not willing to Google that, but it sounds fucking terrible. He also had blisters on the sides of his head above his ears. Electrocution is most definitely cruel and unusual punishment and should only be used on pedophiles. Oh. Shit, I forgot who we were executing here. Carry on. Joubert's last words were, I just want to say again that I am sorry for what I have done. I do not know if my death will change anything or if it will bring anyone peace. And I just ask the families of Danny Everly and Christopher Walden and Richard Stetson to please try and find some peace and ask the people of Nebraska to forgive me. That's all. Oddly enough, his last meal was a pizza with onions and green peppers, strawberry cheesecake, and black coffee. Is that just standard fare in Nebraska? What the fuck? Maybe that's where I'll commit my capital offense. Just a joke, calm down. I can have pizza and cheesecake without murdering people. That was a rough one. Much like the muggy November weather and loser Anna saying this guy's name over and over was giving me the horribles. In this podcast, I like to tell you guys about the failings of the justice system. Last meals are my bread and butter, but judicial failure is the gravy on top of that. Don't even try to tell me you don't dunk your buttered Thanksgiving rolls in the gravy, you fucking liar. When we think of how broken the system is today, a few popular examples are racism and untested DNA getting people executed. Back in history, the government still fucked up and wrongly accused people. And this was back in a time when it was a lot harder to prove your innocence. Jack Marion was born in Mahaska County, Iowa on May 13, 1849. He moved around a bit and ended up marrying a woman in Gage County, Nebraska in 1871. 
Work was sparse in this area around this time, so Jack decided to take his friend John Cameron out to Valley Falls, Kansas to work on the railroad. In early May of 1871, the men stopped and stayed the night at Jack's mother-in-law's house in Wildcat Creek. On May 5th, Jack brought John's horses back to the home of Rachel Warren, where they'd been staying. John was not with him. Rachel assumed that Jack had killed his friend. Jack eventually left Nebraska and moved on to Kansas, as initially planned. Sometime in March of 1873, a decomposing body was found in a riverbed in Gage County, Nebraska. An unidentified witness later claimed that the clothes belonged to John Cameron. The obvious suspect here is the man who he was last seen with. You know, the one who stole his horses. But he was nowhere to be found in the state of Nebraska. It would be almost 10 years before they located Jack in a jail cell in Sedan, Kansas. While awaiting trial for a theft charge in Kansas, he was moved back to Nebraska to be tried for murder. A jury found him guilty, and the judge sentenced him to death. He appealed on the grounds that a death sentence had to be imposed by a jury and not just the judge. That's how it is everywhere in modern times, I believe. He got a new trial, and was once again found guilty and sentenced to death. William Jackson Marion was executed by hanging on March 25, 1887. A newspaper article from the following day claimed that there was no doubt he was guilty, and also guilty of other murders in the Indian Territory. I just want you to think about that for a minute. All it took to be found guilty of murder was stealing someone's horses. This was 1887. No DNA, probably no fingerprints, no real way to compare any hairs accurately. All they had on Jack was that he'd stolen John's horses, and that a body had been found wearing similar clothes. Forensic science has come a very long way. Due to the time period, I can't find anything on Jack's last words or last meal. You thought the story was over, right? Well, I told you, the government is incompetent as fuck. It's all I ever tell you about. In 1891, John Cameron was found alive and well. He explained that he'd spent the past two decades roaming around North America trying to avoid an allegation of paternity. That's right. He got scared by a woman claiming he fathered a child and wanted to get the fuck out of Nebraska. His friend was executed because of this. And the horses? John sold them to Jack and was able to provide the note that was given to him as payment. Jack Marion was posthumously pardoned on March 25, 1987, exactly a hundred years after his wrongful execution. This case isn't famous. If you Google posthumous exonerations, nearly all of them are cases of black men who were wrongfully convicted and executed and later exonerated. Jack Marion was a white country boy in the Civil War era. I hate to lean right on you, but I don't think a person's skin color matters. Jack's story is just as relevant as George Stinney Jr.'s. Both were failed by a broken system. As I research these cases, I am often amazed by how similar some of the crimes are from state to state. I mean, murder's murder, but sometimes I run across a case that is almost identical to one I've already covered. This next guy reminds me a lot of Carl Panzerum. Looks a bit like him, too. Panzerum 
Patrick Murphy came into this world in the year 1881 in County Mayo, Ireland. His early life was full of criminal mischief, including a prison sentence for killing cattle. It's really all there is on him until he came to the States. Why anyone would move from Ireland to Nebraska is beyond me, but then again, Ireland might not have been all that great back in the early 20th century. The city of Omaha and surrounding areas were on high alert in February of 1926 when a mechanic named William McDevitt was shot more than four times with a 22 caliber pistol that had a silencer on it. Shortly after this, someone shot through the windows of a pharmacy. And then a doctor was mysteriously murdered in his office. I'd be on high alert too. Hell, I remember a protest happening in Salt Lake a couple years ago where someone took a shit on a police car and being on high alert, even though we lived like 10 miles south of Salt Lake. This kind of violence would scare the shit out of me. That's why I'll never live in a big city again. I say, as I live in a city with a population of almost 300,000, I think? Y'all know what I mean, though. On February 15th, 1926, some newspapers in Omaha recommended that everyone black out their lights at night because the recent murders had all taken place as the victims stood in the windows of their homes. This unfortunately didn't do anything to protect the public as another victim was shot in the face during the day. Businesses in Omaha began to shut down in fear of the sniper attacking people in the city. A railroad detective in Council Bluffs, Iowa was shot on February 21st. He survived and was able to give a description of his attacker. This would lead to an arrest just two weeks after the shooting started. Police found a sad-looking man with dark hair wandering around about 30 miles south of Council Bluffs. Frank Carter was his name, and he readily admitted to being the Omaha sniper. He also claimed responsibility for other crimes in the area. His intention had been to rob William McDevitt and Dr. A.D. Searles, but he decided to shoot them instead, telling police, I just get the inclination to shoot. No evidence that Carter had committed any of the other crimes he admitted to ever came to be. It was all just tall tales from an Irishman. Oh, yeah, Frank Carter wasn't his real name. He was actually Patrick Murphy, and he was completely off his rocker. His attorneys tried for an insanity defense, and Murphy threatened that he'd try to escape, before changing his mind and wanting a death sentence. Frank Carter, formerly known as Patrick Murphy, was executed by electrocution on June 24, 1927. This was not something he tried to appeal. In his words, I am glad they don't hang in this state because I am anxious to see how it feels to be electrocuted. The Carl Panzerum vibes are fucking real with this guy, I'm telling you. As he was strapped into the electric chair, he was reported to have said, Be sure to fix this right so that it will get me the first time. There's nothing available on his last meal due to the time period, but his last words were, Something else, goddamn. Let the juice flow. While wandering around the internet looking for those currently on death row in Nebraska, I came across a couple people who have been covered on Sword and Scale, Nico Jenkins and Aubrey Trail. As of the time of writing, I am intending to talk about Aubrey Trail on tomorrow night's livestream, as he's been in the news recently trying to get an execution date. So head on over to Rumble and watch me live on Friday nights. 
It's a blast, especially if I make the dumb decision to drink while I'm reading the news. Anyway, on that list of people waiting for death in Nebraska, there's a man named John Lauder. This one is going to have a lot of controversial opinions, so if you're a whiny liberal, you might want to go find something else to listen to now. It's not often that I'm able to find much on the lives of victims in these cases. Their families usually just want to move on and not be in the media after tragedy strikes, which is totally understandable. A couple movies were made about this case, including a very famous one that I will mention later on. I'm sure at least one of my listeners has seen it. Tina Renee Brandon was born in Lincoln, Nebraska on December 12, 1972. She had a rough start to life, as her dad was killed in a car accident eight months before she was born. Tina was named after the family's German Shepherd. Why would you... whatever. Not, not gonna judge. My kids have really unique names. Wouldn't name a child Lilo, though. Alice isn't too weird, but it's too common for my taste. Those are my animals, in case you couldn't figure that out. Tina had an older sister named Tammy, and they lived somewhat happily with their mother Joanne in a trailer park in Lincoln. Of course, gotta have a fucking trailer park in the Nebraska episode somewhere. Life didn't get any easier for Tina and Tammy as they got older. Their uncle sexually abused both of them for several years. Eventually, Tina and her mother would seek counseling for this. Joanne went on to remarry, but this didn't last as her husband was an alcoholic. Tina was described as a tomboy from a young age. She was ahead of her time, let me fucking tell you, ripped right out of the current decade and thrown into the 80s. During her adolescence, Tina began identifying as male and started dating a female student. Joanne, clearly wondering what the fuck, refused to accept Tina's identity and continued to refer to her as female, as I will also continue to do for reasons that will become clear soon. Tina claimed to be intersex, but this was later disproved. Tina was ahead of her time, I guess you could say. She definitely belongs in 2023. She protested the views of the Christian schools she attended and intentionally broke the dress code to present herself more masculinely. I know something about intentionally breaking the dress code, but that's because I was a goth kid that liked spikes and chains and all the other things that good Mormon Utah schools don't allow. Y'all know what I look like. I ain't changed a bit. Tina went on to join the army after she turned 18 and was hoping to serve during Operation Desert Shield, but she failed the entrance exam because she lied and listed her sex as male. So now we're getting to the part where I explain why I am intentionally misgendering Tina. I do my best to be respectful and don't usually go out of my way to make a scene in this situation, but I fucking hate pedophiles and have no respect for them or their delusions. Tina, at the age of 18, went on a date with a 13-year-old girl. During this date, she met a 14-year-old girl named Heather. This is when Tina started cross-dressing more frequently in an attempt to attract teenage girls. I don't give a shit what you identify as. Pedophiles are pedophiles and do not deserve any respect. Tina was expelled from high school just three days before graduation. Sticking with her type, Tina got into her first serious relationship with the then 14-year-old Heather. Fun fact, I know you love these. 
I had a friend way back in the day who called me jailbait because I was 15 and he was 18 and he was all worried I'd call the cops. I didn't call the cops, I ain't no snitch. But this dude turned out to be a real piece of shit. Who would have thought? Anyway, Tina started working at a gas station to try to save up money and get a trailer with Heather. Joanne, who didn't approve of the relationship, enlisted the help of Tammy to follow Tina around to see if the relationship was platonic or something more. In January of 1992, Tina was examined by a psychiatrist and determined to be suffering from a severe sexual identity crisis. Pretty sure that's somehow offensive in 2023, but I don't care. I warned you about those opinions of mine. Shortly after a stay in the Lancaster County Crisis Center, Tina confessed to her mother that she had been raped by a male relative as a child. I'm assuming this was the uncle I mentioned earlier. Sometime in 1993, Tina moved to Falls City and really ran with the male identity. She started hanging out with some of the local residents. She moved in with a woman named Lisa Lambert and shortly thereafter started dating Lisa's friend Lana. Thankfully, Lana was an adult. She was 19. Around this time, Tina also met John Lauder and Marvin Nissen. In December of 1993, Tina was arrested for forging checks. Lana bailed her out and at this time learned that Tina was actually female. I'm gonna stop us right here and just ask, how the fuck did you not know? Were you not bumping uglies or whatever it is people did back in the 90s? Tina tried to claim that she was a hermaphrodite, but as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this was proven to be false. Tina's arrest was featured in the local newspaper with her legal name and biological sex, so her new ex-con friends would learn that she wasn't actually a man. During a party on Christmas Eve of 1983, Nissen and Lauder forced Tina to pull her pants down and show them her genitals to prove to Lana that she was actually female. Later on, the men assaulted Tina and forced her into a car before driving her out near a meatpacking plant. It was here that she was beaten and raped, a fucking despicable crime. Tina was driven back to Nissen's house and forced to take a shower. She managed to escape out the bathroom window and went back to Lana's house. Lana convinced her to file a police report. This didn't end well. Nissen and Lauder had threatened her that if she told the cops about what happened, they'd silence her permanently. They looked for Tina, but couldn't find her. When the cops questioned them, they denied everything and they were not charged due to a lack of evidence. Wasn't DNA a thing in the 90s? They did a rape kit, there's your fucking evidence. On December 31st, 1993, Lauder and Nissen drove to Lisa's house looking for Tina. The men broke in and found Lisa in bed. They demanded to know where Tina was, but Lisa wouldn't tell them. Nissen looked around for a bit and found Tina under the bed. When asked if there was anyone else in the house, Lisa told them that Lana's sister's boyfriend, Philip Devine, was staying with her. Nissen and Lauder shot Philip, Lisa, and Tina in front of Lisa's toddler. When Nissen noticed that Tina was still twitching, he asked for a knife and stabbed her repeatedly to make sure she was dead. They left the house and were later charged with murder. I mean, obviously, who the fuck else would have done it? Joanne would later go on to sue the sheriff of Richardson County for failing to prevent Tina's death. I don't blame her at all. She won and received $80,000. 
Marvin Thomas Nissen took a plea deal and was sentenced to life without parole. His life was spared because he testified against his accomplice. He's currently serving his time at the Lincoln Correctional Center. John Lauder is still sitting on death row in Nebraska. Lethal injection drugs are hard to come by these days, and it doesn't seem like they'll be using fentanyl again anytime soon. Old age might get him before the state gets a chance, but then again, he was only 22 at the time of the murder. I'm sure this murder could be seen as a hate crime, but in reality, it was a case of leaving no witnesses behind. They told Tina that they were going to kill her if she went to the cops. I don't agree with what they did at all. The fact that Tina was preying on teenagers makes me fucking sick, but she didn't deserve to be murdered for snitching on the men who raped her. The movie Boys Don't Cry was based on a documentary about Tina's murder. I briefly mentioned Aubrey Trail a minute ago, as his case has been in the news recently, but I also found another case that's ongoing in Nebraska that could end in the death penalty. I guess the corn people like handing out death sentences, even if they don't plan on actually killing anyone. On August 4th, 2022, a man named Jason Jones was found hiding in his wife's house with severe burns. His wife lived across from a 53-year-old woman named Michelle Ebeling, who had been found murdered. Her house had been set on fire. After a bit of an investigation, the bodies of 86-year-old Jean Twyford, his 85-year-old wife Janet, and their 55-year-old daughter Dana were also found. And their house was also set on fire. Did y'all know that fire causes severe burns? The kind that Jason Jones was found to be suffering from? Jason's wife, Carrie, was also charged in relation to this crime. Apparently, she wanted her husband to kill Jean as he'd been verbally harassing her and making sexual comments toward her for years. An 86-year-old man. Are you fucking for real? At a hearing in February of 2023, prosecutors claimed that Carrie Jones had either encouraged the murder or participated in it. Jason Jones was charged with arson, weapons charges, and four counts of first-degree murder. He pled not guilty and has not gone to trial yet. Maybe this one will come up in the news, and I'll get to update y'all about it. Carrie Jones was charged with accessory to murder and first-degree murder in the death of Jean. I doubt she'll face the death penalty. In Aubrey Trail's case, his female accomplice was given life without parole. Much like the rest of the country, Nebraska really doesn't like executing women, even if they deserve it. I will try to keep an eye on this one and throw it in a live stream if it comes up again. I think that's gonna do it for the corn and Kool-Aid state. There truly are some weird motherfuckers hiding out in those cornfields. If you enjoyed this episode, text a random number and share the link with them. I'm just a humble night shift zombie trying to grow this podcast with a monthly budget of zero dollars. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMailPod. As I mentioned earlier, I stream on Rumble on Friday nights, unless I have to work. Sometimes my favorite Canadian joins me. You can follow him on his channel, Third Railify, if you like politics in addition to murder stories. I'll be back next week with 
something. I'm not sure what yet. Still trying to catch up on all the shit I wasn't able to write while I was chained to a desk in December. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.